Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Whoop podcast, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop. If you don't know what Whoop is, check us out at whoop.com. We build wearable technology. All right. On this week's episode, Whoop VP of Performance Science, Principal Scientist Kristen Holmes is joined by exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist Dr. Stacy Sims. Dr. Sims is a women's health expert who has directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. Dr. Stacy Sims is a member of the WHOOP Scientific Advisory Council, and she's also published over 70 peer-reviewed papers, several books, regularly featured speaker at professional and academic conferences, including those by USOC and USA Cycling. Kristen and Stacy dive in on how men and women have different profiles for building strength, having conversation with young girls around puberty and how it changes their training, women training throughout different stages of their menstrual cycle. This is really interesting. What is the optimal time to train with heavy lifting or HIIT workouts and knowing when the body should be recovering? I think women will enjoy this. Tips on how to maintain energy levels during the luteal phase, how to train while going through perimenopause and during postmenopause, and how Dr. Sims relies on adaptogens when she is traveling and dealing with circadian disruption. So keep in mind, she's traveling from New Zealand to Boston to Amsterdam to DC over the next plus week. So you're going to hear how she manages all of that. For all the WHOOP members out there, we're also excited to share with you a new update to our app. We have a new home redesign. We've also introduced heart rate zones and 30-day average comparisons to our strain activities. So those are two new things you're going to be seeing in the Whoop app. Uh, make sure you have the latest Whoop app. Update that in the App Store. And go back into some of your old workouts. You're going to be able to see the different zones that you are training in. And, of course, you're going to be able to do that for all new workouts going forwards. If you're new to Whoop, you can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, when you're checking out. Get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. Use that credit bands, battery packs, body apparel, and more. That is at Whoop.com. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast at Whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. And without further ado, here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Stacy Sims. Dr. Stacy Sims is a Ford thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who is revolutionizing exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She has directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato, focusing on female athlete health and performance and is truly pushing the dogma to improve research for all women. Her contributions to the international research environment and the sports nutrition industry has established a new niche of sports nutrition and established her reputation as the expert in sex differences in training, nutrition, and health. As a direct result, she has been named one of the top 50 visionaries of the running industry, 2015, by DMSE Sports, one of the top 40 women changing the paradigm of her field, by Outside Magazine, one of the top four visionaries in outdoor sports industry, by Outside Magazine, Genius Issue, and one of the top four individuals changing the landscape and Triathlon Nutrition by Triathlete Magazine. Stacy, so, so honored to have you here today. And I'm here, like, 
it is person. a in person. It's very exciting. It's really exciting. Um, it's Thanks. so good to see you in the flesh. I know. Um, no more just... Zoom. I feel like we need a screen. I know. It's like so odd. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is really exciting. I, you know, it's we've had a lot of conversations around that have been female focused, and but one area that I think we haven't really truly dug into is just how do we train across the reproductive years, you know, and how, to, and how does it change? You know, I imagine when I'm in my 20s versus 30s versus 40s versus 50s, it changes a little bit. So I really wanted to get into what those changes look like, how data can help us, you know, what are, you know, how do we need to think about nutrition, you know, hydration, you know, I want to kind of put it all together for folks if we can. I know that's ambitious, but you are the person to kind of help pull it together because okay, of your expertise in all of these areas. So I want to start, you know, you really, I know when I first came to, to know Stacey Sims, it was, it was through your TED Talk, uh, which is, you know, this very famous tagline now, women are not small men. Maybe just start there. Just what are the differences? Uh, so I guess when we look at it, we know that there are sex differences in utero. And then after birth, we still see their sex differences. That's why you have XX versus XY within the biological confines. And they have a direct um, influence on lung volume, heart size, hemoglobin counts, uh, our biomechanics, brain, brain function, mood. And then when we start getting into puberty and we see epigenetic changes with the exposure of our sex hormones, we see for the most part, boys will lean up, they get stronger bones, they have more aggression, they can have more speed and power. And then for the girls, our hips widen, our center of gravity changes, our shoulder, shoulder girdle widens, we put on more body fat, and then we get our period. And so when we start seeing the epigenetic changes that happen with our sex hormones, we also see influence of estrogen and progesterone on things like how we fuel, how we thermoregulate, how we have fluid balance how our mood changes, um, neurotransmitters, all of these things that we just say, oh, it's because I'm a woman. But they are direct influences from our genetics when we're born all the way through these epigenetic changes that happen with our sex hormones. You know, there's the turning point in a girl's life where she becomes a woman. Yeah. And I think that's, I think what we've seen in the research is, is that is at the point where where girls, women, they're participating participation in sports declines. So what is, how can parents think about that conversation with their daughter? You know, she's entering puberty, she gets her period, things are changing, you know, in her body. And she, all of a sudden she maybe feels less confident. You know, her, she doesn't have the coordination that maybe she did previously. Things are just, what, what is, how can parents think about that conversation? How can coaches think about that conversation? Yeah, I think one of the biggest missteps is that when we look at kids that are in the puberty range, we're still using male data and male training protocols. What we should be looking at from a coach's point of view is reteaching fundamentals to our girls, how to run, how to throw, how to jump, how to land, because we've had these biomechanical changes. So this is why we're seeing girls who feel ungangly, they feel slow, they feel not right in their sport because they're still trying to work with how their body was before they've had these biomechanical and muscular changes. So when we start trying to invoke in that conversation, we see changes happening before the actual period starts. So this is why you'll see like early days in elementary school, 
the boys and girls are playing soccer or whatever together on the field. And then when they hit like fifth and sixth grade, no more. It's like the boys are really aggressive and they're pushing and the girls are like off in their own world, either, you know, doing monkey bars or trying to play their own soccer games. But we've seen this like switch and it's because we're seeing the early exposure of these hormones. So from a parent's point of view, just explaining to your daughter that things are changing because you're growing up. But that doesn't mean that you stop sport. It means that we take a, a little bit of a pull back and we look at how are we running? Let's work on running drills. Let's work on functional movement. Let's see how you are squatting, how you are landing, and really start working on that and having the conversation with the coaches too. Often we see girls that will plateau and then go backwards in their sport, right? And just encouraging the girls to say, hey, this is just a temporary time. This is, might be six months to eight months where you're going to stagnate. But during this time, we want to keep working on those fundamental skills, because if we are working on those fundamental skills in the new body positions, then you can then build the speed, the strength, the power once these changes have occurred. And what do you say to the coach, the parent, the pediatrician who thinks they fix it with hormonal birth control? I want to, yeah. So, <laughs> I know, I get so frustrated with the answer of, have an oral contraceptive pill fix everything because it doesn't it just masks symptoms and um periods are irregular for the first two years after they start and yes they can wreak havoc and no one can really say oh you're gonna have a light bleed then you're gonna have a heavy bleed and you start to have skin issues but they're really good dermatologists and topical aspects that you can use so when we're looking at using an oral contraceptive pill it's actually down regulating your own body's ovarian hormones and rhythms. So these um, external hormones actually take the place of your natural ones. So it's not really doing anything to, quote, fix a problem. It's masking it. So if there is a health issue that's coming up, irregular periods, heavy bleeds, investigate that. Because when you come off the pill, those problems are still going to be there. And when we're talking to girls who like, I want to be able to skip my period. Well, why? Why is it? Because we know that having a period is a sign that you are healthy, that your endocrine system is responding not only to daily life stress, but also your training stress. So we can use it as a marker of how you are actually responding to training, adapting to training, as well as the load of life. And if it's a heavy bleeding issue, again, there are things that we can talk about and things that we can do to make it better. Because I don't think that's a conversation that people have. Like, what is a normal bleed pattern? What does it mean to have heavy bleeding or not? And we might talk about periods, but no one talks about the nuts and bolts of what's happening. So if we have those conversations as well, then we can start to see, is there some kind of dysfunction that needs to be addressed from a medical standpoint? Or is it just the irregularities that come up as puberty hits and you start getting into your teen years? What kind of skills do you build by exposing yourself to that information? Oh, gosh. I mean, I look at my daughter who's 10, right? And she's having these conversations with her friends trying to get Totally. Them. I'm in the same level. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. And then her friends have questions and they ask my daughter to ask me <laughs> because they don't want to ask their mom. So it's like when you have a point person who can ask these questions and aren't afraid, then I think it's kind of interesting, those dynamics. So it just really takes one or two people who are open and having those open conversations across the board, not just about periods and not making it taboo in your house. 
because then your daughter will feel comfortable coming and saying, hey, I'm having really bad cramps or I can't sleep or, or just having a natural conversation about what's going on. All right, let's talk about just training and in the context of the menstrual cycle. So for women who are naturally cycling, how do women need to think about their training over the course of their, of their cycle? Before we use like official training words, we can say undulating periodization. Yes, excellent. <laughs> Um, so when we're talking about menstrual cycle phase based training, it's not just like how your muscles respond and cardiovascular, but it's also immune system and the psychological aspects. So we see there's immune system shifts where when you start your bleed or day one, you have an immune system response that now is very effective at taking care of pathogens, virus, bacteria, and then it lasts all the way up to ovulation. And after ovulation, it switches and there's a pro-inflammatory higher cytokine response, primarily because the body's like, well, I don't want to attack a fertilized egg. So you have this incredible shift in your immune system. So we're looking at it from a stress-resilient point of view. In the low hormone phase, the body is very stress-resilient. Its whole goal in that low hormone phase is to create a very robust environment for a fertilized egg. So this is the time where we can hit it hard. We can do heavy lifting. We can do high intensity work. We see better recovery. We see in phase-based resistance training, better muscular responses with hypertrophy and, and pure strength development. We see from a high intensity aspect that people can hit higher loads during the um, low hormone timeframe. And the goal of training is to be able to hit higher loads and stress the body to adapt. If we're talking about performance, that's a different conversation. Yeah. So after ovulation, though, when we start having this immune system change, we have changes in our neurotransmitters, changes in mood, changes in cognition, and also changes in metabolism where we start to rely more on um, free fatty acids and less on carbohydrate. This is where we need to get, okay, well, I'm going to do some more steady state work. I'm going to do maybe not 80% uh, of 1RM, but maybe 70% 1RM. And then as we start getting closer and closer to the onset of the bleed, maybe the four or five days before, when we have a peak of those hormones and before they drop off, this is where we want to deload, where we want to look at functional work, we want to look at total recovery to absorb all the hard training from the previous weeks. And of course, there are caveats in there for women who feel absolutely awful in the first few days of their period, then that's fine. You're not going to go hit it hard, but maybe doing a couple of 20-second surges here and there is really good because it creates an anti-inflammatory response in the body that helps with the cramping, with the inflammation that's still there. And some women feel bulletproof the day before their period starts. So don't deload that day, go hit it hard. So you have your own nuances, but when we look at the general scope, we go low hormone, really stress resilient, leading into maybe not quite so resilient need to take care of ourselves in the days leading up to the next bleed. Extend recovery. Yeah. Potentially. What are some other kind of modalities folks can do to just kind of help themselves through that luteal phase where they might not be quite as primed, but can still maintain, you know, energy levels to, if, if they're in a situation, maybe say they were sick during the follicular phase and weren't able to go as hard and they need to make some gains for a competition. You know, what would you recommend? How do they buffer kind of that stress? Like what would be some protocols you put in place? Yeah, so this is where we look from a nutritional strategy. And we know that carbohydrate availability is massive when we're looking at the luteal phase. 
So we need to increase the amount of carbohydrate we're eating in and around training, primarily because women's bodies clear blood sugar out quickly before they start to tap into free fatty acids. So if we don't have available carbohydrate, then we can't actually get into the metabolism we need to hit high intensities. We also know that there's a 12% increase in protein needs because our body is in, in a more catabolic state because we're trying to build this tissue so the body's in a heightened state. There's an elevation in metabolism. So increasing your carbohydrate and protein is a way to kind of level the playing field. When we talk about motivation and cognition, if we are having regular doses of protein, then we're also having higher circulations of leucine that crosses the blood-brain barrier and helps create a better cognition and a better motivation because it reduces tryptophan crossing and reduces the fatigue and the experiences women have when they have estrogen that comes up and then drops off. Three grams of leucine per meal would be the recommendation roughly? Yeah. Okay. And that's turkey. What are some just examples of, you know, proteins that have high concentration of leucine in it? Oh, gosh, you can look at like tempeh has it, tokum has it, all your meat products, right? So we're looking at um, just really high quality proteins. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, talk a little bit about electrolytes during that luteal phase as an important kind of strategy. We know that progesterone increases the amount of sodium that gets kicked out of the body. So we want to make sure that you're salting your food on a regular basis so you're bringing in more sodium to keep potassium and sodium um, in more line. We've also seen in recent research that um, it's not magnesium and calcium that can really affect uh, premenstrual syndrome, but vitamin D status. So if we're looking at increasing our vitamin D, which is not an electrolyte, but I'm bringing it into the conversation anyway, increasing your vitamin D, then it also attenuates the inflammation and the PMS aspects. That's cool. You mentioned psychology. And at court, this is an area where I spend a lot of my time yeah. <laughs> um, and belief effects. You know, there is a, a psychological component to the menstrual cycle just generally. And I think all this information is obviously super critical, right? The more you understand your body and understand the underlying mechanisms, like the more proactive you can be around your own progress, right? Right. But I think they're also like you kind of get in athletes' heads, I think. Um, so maybe talk through what are some of the conversations you've had with some of the top athletes in the world around, you know, how to think about these different phases of the menstrual cycle and how to overcome maybe some of these, you know, beliefs that are not going to be as sharp, you know, during the space. Yeah. Uh, I just on a segue on that, yeah. one of my PhD students is um, the performance dietitian for some of the top teams in New Zealand for the professional teams. And they were going out for a massive international game. And two of them came up and were like, oh, you know, I don't feel that great because my period's starting. He's like, what, are you kidding me? This is the best day to go out and kill it. Yeah. And I did. Oh, I so love it. So it was just like that <laughs> yeah. affirmation of what do you mean I can? And yeah, so just cool. breaking down those barriers. So, yeah, this is what I mean by performance is different from training. Because training, you can work with your hormones. And yeah. the idea behind it is to work to be able to increase the loads when your body can take it on to adapt. So you get better fitness. And you're not fighting. But we're talking about performance. We know that the um, belief and affirmation, plus all the other things you've done to get to that one point in time, supersede the hormonal effects. This is why you're seeing in the literature there's no menstrual cycle phase effect on performance, which is absolutely true. That one point in time, if you have the mental skills and you have prepped really well, then there's no negative effect. It's a very small underlying effect. The problem comes when people are getting that performance and training kind of mixed up. 
where an athlete is like, oh, I always feel really flat on day 23. So my main event is on day 23. What do I do? It's like, okay, well, first we need to change the mindset. We're training. We do something different than what we do on the day of performance. So if you feel flat, well, then we look at increasing branching amino acids. We look at increasing carbohydrate availability. We look at the taper and the sleep leading up to it. So all the controllables we actually control, and then they go and they're firing. When they get that, then they understand, hey, wait, yes, there is a difference between training and performance, and I can perform on any day of my menstrual cycle. Even if day one bleeding is super heavy, there are things we can do in the cycles leading up to it to reduce the heaviness of the bleed. So there's, yeah, it's that, that conversation in the belief system of performance is completely different, and we can nail it on any day of the menstrual cycle, and training is something separate. I love it. I mean, and that's really... And that's where I think this whole conversation has changed. Like there's there's planning, you know, yeah. and we're planning around not just these arbitrary, you know, these dates of when these competitions are, but we're actually planning around how can I optimize these different in the lead up of that event? How can I optimize my training, my sleep, my recovery, all the things that are going to impact me on the day of the race anyway? Right. You know, how can I do those things as consistently as possible? So I have these less, um, you know, egregious perturbations across my training cycle. And I think that's really the opportunity, you know, when you think about all these behaviors that are really foundational, you know, across, you know, for every day of the month, you know, and we need to give ourselves some leeway here and there. But but I think there are a, really a set of kind of non-negotiables and you hit on them a, a little bit sleep. But if you want to just expand on, you know, if we're really trying to be as consistent as possible and minimize the perturbations across the entire cycle, what are just some like cornerstone behaviors that you would recommend athletes and, and just individuals generally adopt? Oh, like fueling for what you're doing, especially female athletes across the board, right? Because so fueling for your activity requirement. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, even the research backs like don't do fasted training because you don't get the adaptations. Even a little bit of protein before resistance training increases your epoch afterwards. So there's so much robust research out there that really shows women should not do fasted training. So you're training for the activity, you're recovering from it, that's critical because it keeps you out of a low energy state, it keeps the hypothalamus understanding that there's nutrition coming in, so it feeds forward to better endocrine health. And then sleep, of course, super important. I mean, the sleep research is still relatively new with regards to everything because we don't actually know why we need to sleep. We just know that we need to sleep, right? And there's all these mechanisms within it. Um, so those are the two big things for female athletes, the two big rocks. Can we go back to fueling for a second? Because yeah. I think, you know, one of my, you know, I'm kind of circadian health things, yes. right? That's what I do research on the studies. So one of my frustrations is that we seem to conflate kind of intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. Absolutely. Time-restricted eating obviously has a circadian component and is wildly beneficial. Intermittent fasting has a calorie component, a rest restricting calories in intermittent fasting. So maybe just talk about, I think, the opportunities for women who are looking to really optimize across, you know, the days, you know, try to be as consistent, as good as they possibly can, you know, across the, the month. Um, maybe talk about the opportunity that exists with time-restricted eating. Yeah. So, I mean, there is that big misconception that intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating are the same thing, but we know it's not. Um, there was a study that came out in Nature maybe six weeks ago that was looking at time differences and showing that 
for those people who fueled mainly before noon, then bias in the morning. Yep. Other cal- yep, bias calories in the morning. Yep. Yeah, reduced obesity, better yep. sleep, better yep. lean mass, all of these things. Right. Insulin resistance, all like just this. every boss and melatonin production. Yes, which is every boss. Right. Yeah. So, like, I get excited. I know. We do. We do. <laughs> I know because I think what's tough and and you know, shoot, I, I've been experimenting with all this stuff, you know. And I look at the research and I'm like, and I'm like, oh shit, that was all on dudes. Oh, that was on mice, you know. And um, but when we, you know, now I think we're starting to kind of get to a point where we're there's some good research you know that's coming out that's um that has both men and women and we can kind of start to see the differences but i love that dr andy galpin too in a recent interview mentioned um that the the whole notion that we shouldn't be eating carbohydrates before we train is just nonsense it like is. it doesn't make any, doesn't like make no any basis sense. for that at well, all so yeah I, I think we we miss opportunities you know when we're kind of training in these depleted states absolutely and it's the whole, like, let's take health research and pull it into the fitness world. And it doesn't work. Because if you see fasted training from someone who's trying to get insulin control, yes, yeah. possibly. For someone who needs to lose a lot of body fat, then yes, possibly. Right. But when you bring it into a healthy population that's active, it just doesn't work. And that's what we're starting to see more and more in the active research, and um, which makes me so happy. Yeah. And we need, we need that nuance right like i think people need to accept that hey we're, we can't just throw everything into a bucket whether that's fitness bucket the health bucket the wellness bucket like yeah there's just different needs across those buckets and we have to be able to we need to understand the science that exists in one of those buckets and yeah. go from there yeah. and i think we, we have to be careful not to kind of complete you know these different these different buckets okay great so training that's awesome let's like dig in because we're going to talk a little bit more about about sleep, but on the fueling side, if um, I'm just kind of a general fitness enthusiast, you know, I'm trying to get you know stronger and faster, and you know, improve my cardiovascular health, strength. Would you say that I should maybe lift more weights during kind of menses and ovulation? And you know, is there should I prioritize like the different training modalities across the the month? Would you say if we're trying to really get power and speed? And then we do want to prioritize the lifting in the follicular phase. Okay. That's when I'm going to be kind of strongest, yes. essentially. Yes. Most primed to kind of yes. take on those gains. And okay. we are seeing um, research from ACL rehab all the way through, like someone who's just trying to get muscle gains, where if you're prioritizing the lifting in the follicular phase, you get better hypertrophy and muscular control. So central nervous system for all the control proprioception plus the size of the muscle. We're looking at the high intensity work. It hasn't quite been done yet. We're looking at what is the best for your true sprint interval and high intensity anaerobic training. If we look at the research that surrounds it, then it also makes sense from a metabolic standpoint to do your anaerobic capacity in the follicular phase as well when you can access carbohydrate better. I feel like my track workouts are just, they're just you better in that. Yeah, I just feel, I always like, I plan my, yeah. yeah. And I just do kind of the longer, slow stuff and yeah. luteal. Yeah. yeah. But I always put in skill-based work in the luteal phase when my body is most fatigued from a central nervous system and proprioception. Because if I'm really trying just to explain proprioception, because that might be a so term. Proprioception is like your balance and like bar path those kinds of things. So I work on my Olympic lifting technique in the luteal phase with light 
almost no weight on the bar. So I can really nail the bar path. So then when I go into the follicular phase and I load it, that bar path and that pattern is firing really well because I've taught it that when yeah. it was a little bit compromised. So when we look at technique, a lot of people are like, oh, do technique in the low hormone phase because you're really on par. It's like, well, yes, but if you really want to develop technique when you're fatigued, work when your body is a little bit more fatigued. And I put a lot of the skill-based stuff for my athletes in that mid to late luteal phase when they're deloading. So then I'm like, well, why do I do this? And it's like, well, let's wait and let's see what happens when you get in the gym during the your bleed week. And they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I see what you mean. So how does this change? So obviously we're really focused on, you know, women with a menstrual cycle. How does this change and folks start to have inconsistent periods? So kind of getting into, you know, perimenopause and then once the period ends, how do, how do things change? How do we need to reprioritize how we train? Yeah, so do we? You, we do, definitely. So when we're looking at perimenopause, we look at early and late perimenopause. So early perimenopause is often when a woman's like, I don't understand what's going on, but my training and my nutrition, I just can't do what I used to do. Starting to put on a little bit of abdominal fat. I can't lift the loads. I always feel tired. So this is what we start to kind of investigate on a periodization standpoint of, okay, we need to change the recovery aspect. So we need to increase recovery, drop some of the volume but we can still phase-based train because you're still having a regular cycle. When we get into late perimenopause, so this is about the five years before that one point in time menopause, we start to see changes in bleed patterns. We start to see changes in the entire cycle. So this is where we can't really phase-based train. So we are having more and more anovulatory cycles. If we're having anovulatory cycles, of course, we're not producing progesterone. And we start to have a change in our ratio of estrogen and progesterone. So this is where we look and say, okay, well, this is the time where we see the biggest amount of body composition shift. We see more abdominal adiposity, uh, a greater amount of lean mass loss. We see uh, a little bit of insulin resistance coming into play. And we need to look and say, what kind of external stressors can I provide my body that is going to create the ad- adaptations that these hormones used to support? So this is where we really get into prioritizing power-based resistance training. We're lifting heavy loads. We want a central nervous system response because if we're looking at recruiting more fibers and having a central nervous system response, then we're not as reliant on estrogen to do that for us. When we're looking at how are we mitigating these body composition changes, we need to stay out of that moderate intensity zone. Because if we're doing moderate intensity, which is your typical F45 orange theory hit class, then you're just really going to increase cortisol and stay in a sympathetic drive. If we're polarizing and really going true high intensity interval training or sprint interval training, so maximum capacity, like flat out. Full gas, right? Yeah. Then you're going to get epigenetic changes within the muscle that increases your insulin resistance. It also increases your body's ability to store carbohydrate, reduces the signal for abdominal adiposity. Um, So this is where we start really going, you need to drop volume totally drop volume because you want to be able to do heavy loads and high intensity um, cardiovascular work. And even for my endurance athletes, we go two weeks on where we're doing quality work and then one week of a deload where we are very low intensity 
if you're training for a marathon, you're training for an ultra, then we have more time on the feet. And just talk real quick about recovery periods and how to manipulate that for different effects. You know, yeah. So if we're doing sprint interval training and we're really trying to maximize that, you want to make sure that you are doing your 30 seconds or less as super maximal, as hard as you can go. And your recovery is enough to recover central nervous system. So some women you'll see doing these heavy, heavy sprints, they'll go like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, 30 seconds. No, that's not that's high That's high intensity. That's high intensity. Yeah. High yeah. intensity high training. And, yes. And sprint and, and sprint. training are two different things. Yes. 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 So sprints, we're doing 30 seconds on and like two minutes off. Right. Like complete recovery. So you're after like so absolute quality. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you, and you might be able to, yes, you might be able to do four when you first start. And then you're like, boom, I'm completely done, which is great. That's fine. And then when we're talking about high intensity interval training. Wait, let's, wait, let's just, um, so I tend to prioritize sprint interval training because I feel like there's a bit more return. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. Yeah, so maybe just talk because I, I don't think people really do s s sprint interval training. I think people are intimidated by it, but I think we just need to get the ladies out there sprinting um, because of all the things that are happening metabolically and from a nervous system standpoint. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, just kind of inspire people to get out there and do sit. Yeah, I know. It's like, don't pull a hamstring. Yes. Phase your way into it. Um, would you recommend, I used to do this with my athletes at Princeton. We would, um, when they would come back from a long break, we would always start uphill sprinting yes. to shorten the gait. You know, so it's just really hard to overstride when you're sprinting uphill. So I think that can be actually a good place to start with sit. And, and stairs. And stairs. Yeah. 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 And my cyclists in the off season, right? Because there's snow on the ground. I had them run stairs, like do sprints up the stairs because it's still maintaining that sprint capacity. It's more of that short cycling capacity and there's a low risk of injury. So when people are like, well, I can't sprint, it's like, well, you start with stairs or uphill and maybe you're power walking first. And then you start the high intensity, like trying to run the stairs, run up, walk down, run up, walk down. And it is about shortening the gait and about not tearing anything, the shorter stride, really driving the knees up, thinking about foot to knee, foot to knee, foot to knee. And you get so many great benefits from it. You get greater rebound power. You can then go do box jumps, right? Because you're developing all that power and that reflex that people need. Body composition. Body. Yeah. I always bring it back to when spinning first started in the 90s and it took off like a storm. Because all of a sudden people were doing high intensity work and the body fat was just whoo, going in body recon. So now that, you know, people are like, oh, spinning now. And now you're seeing all these um, like hit classes and there's even some sprint interval stuff. Uh, Les Mills has a strength development specific stream and a sprint interval specific stream. And those are the two where I'm like, this is fantastic because they on demand and in the studios. It's like, I wish other gyms would follow suit because it get kind of messed up in the hit stuff but yes yeah, sprint sorry i sidetracked but sprint interval training no it's sprint. good i, no, I, I, I sidetracked you but I, um so would you say how many times a week should you do hit how many times a week should you do sit and when should you do your zone two and your strength what would be kind of the optimal and maybe it depends depending on where you are in your cycle we kind of talked about that a little bit but if let's say i want to do all these things across the week what would be your advice yeah, so if we're looking perimenopause and menopause, we go a two-week block, right? So in one week, um, we're doing minimum three heavy resistance training, uh, two sprint interval, and maybe one hit, or two hits and one sprint. 
So it's variable on those intensities. And you can back up a, a resistance training session with sprint interval training. So you can do your heavy lifting in the gym and then jump on a bike, uh, elliptical, treadmill, whatever it is, and do your sprint interval training. And after the strength training, ideally, after right? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So it's, you're in and out of the gym in an hour and you have two of your sessions. Then the next week you might, you know, if you're block training your squats or whatever, you're still doing your three times a week heavy resistance load. And then maybe you want to do two hits in one sit. So it's variable in those two weeks. And then that last or that third week where we're talking about that deload, this is where it's all recovery modality. So you're in the gym because it's in your plan, but instead of doing heavy loads, you're doing technique under the bar. Um, and then this is where if you're training for something long or you just need soul food, where you keep it very, very easy when you go out for your longer session. And how do you, how would you recommend, you know, for those deload weeks or those kind of taper weeks, how do nutrition requirements change there for menopause, perimenopause? It's always about the protein. You keep the protein elevated. We're looking at two to two and a half grams per kilogram of body weight. So it's a little over that one gram per pound um, consistently. I hear people say, because, you know, we've been talking about that a lot and there's lots of good information, I think, out there or starting to get out there about the importance of protein. And um, that feels like a lot of protein yeah. for, I think, yeah, for I a think. lot of women. But you can't really have too much protein from what I understand. I haven't found any evidence of that in the literature. No, no. And I mean, there's been some studies that have been done in the Florida State University group where they brought the women up to 3.3 to 3.5 grams Dr. Ortiz per kilo. group. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is no negative effects. People are like, what about my kidneys? Like, unless you have an undercurrent of kidney disease, and then yeah, you have to watch. There's no issues on bone. There's no issue on kidney. It's just you up it. And we also see like when you go to altitude, you need more protein. If you're in a heavy block of resistance training, eking it up to that three grams really helps with body recomp and strength. And I think it's because it's been in the bodybuilding set for so much, like high protein, you're going to get bulky. So women are afraid. But unless you are eating an abundance of food and training super, super consistently hard and focused, you're not going to get bulky. Okay, so... If I can only do, let's say I'm in menopause and I can only do three workout sessions a week, I can only work out three times. What do I prioritize? Resistance training. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. For body recomp, for metabolic control, brain health, specifically because of the central nervous system connections and neural growth factor that comes with the resistance training, seeing how it really attenuates Alzheimer's risks. We see it's better for proprioception and quality of life when you get older. So if you happen to slip and step off a curb wrong, you don't fall and break a hip. So there's so many beneficial things about just doing the resistance. There's a neuroprotective effect. Exactly. Yeah. And when I travel, that's all I do. I find a gym. I'm like, I don't want to get lost running. I don't want to fall something. I don't you know retired. Let's just go lift heavy. I think that's a great default. And and I think for you know for women who are listening who are in their teens and twenties and thirties like get comfortable lifting like don't wait until you're like oh my god I have to really start lifting because I'm at this point of no return right now and I'm in yeah. menopause and I'm struggling and I realized that the cure is actually resistant training get that going as early as possible right quit making every gym a bro gym yeah. like the one I was in this morning there were two women me and this other younger woman who was in the upstairs weight room 
there are a few on the treadmill, but I mean, in the weight room, I was like, we're surrounded by dudes, but I'm going to monopolize this one lifting platform because I'm going to. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, okay. So what did we miss in terms of training and perimenopause and menopause? Like what else do women need to know? Um, I think one of the questions I often get a lot is what about me? I've had a hysterectomy and people are like, I don't, where do I fit? If you still have your ovaries from hysterectomy, then you can still track your cycle. You're still ovulating. You still have your ovarian hormones. If you have had a hysterectomy, have your ovaries and you're in your mid to late forties, and we know that it's perimenopausal. So you can still track, but we really preference you to train like your perimenopause into menopause. If you've had a total hysterectomy, this is what we call medical menopause. And you go into surgery, naturally cycling, and you wake up, boom, menopausal. And the first six months is absolutely crazy. Your body is completely going wackadoo because you haven't had the lead in that perimenopause has to downregulate some of your estrogen receptors. So if you can, you talk to your physician about using menopause hormone therapy up to an age appropriate where they're like, okay, you're probably menopausal. We can tape you up or not, but definitely need to prioritize the heavy resistance in protein to really minimize those body composition changes that happen with the immediacy of medical menopause. So when we're looking at hysterectomy, it depends on what has been taken and what has not. And we look at the eye of if you're naturally cycling with ovaries or what your age is versus that immediate medical menopause. Sleep. You know, sleep is really important for exercise capacity and other uh, important functions. You have just flown from New Zealand to Boston, and then you go Boston to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to D.C., D.C. to London. That is going to be your schedule in the coming weeks. So how do you think about travel and sleep and training, you know, talk people through like how do you think about fueling and training just so you can kind of keep yourself because you're not just visiting these cities for fun like you're going and speaking on huge platforms in front of loads of people like these no but but it's not like you're just going to to see the you know big ben like you're you know, you're actually you're you're really having to perform so how do you manage some of these variables that are really challenging yeah yeah I really rely on adaptogens because I was exposed to adaptogens when I was doing my postdoc at Stanford. Oh, so many years ago. I don't want to count all the years, but I'm a huge fan of rhodiola, a huge fan of ashwagandha, and a huge fan of shishandra. So I use rhodiola um, really to help with sleep and the stress and the calming. I use it on the plane. I use it when I'm trying to go to sleep in the new time zone. So 640 milligrams, I think, is the kind of a going rate. And then ashwagandha across the board to help with stress. Um, Shishandra I use to wake up instead of caffeine because I'm a diehard espresso person, like love it. And so instead of going, I need coffee, 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 because I know that's going to interfere with sleep, then I'll have whatever time I wake up, I'll have a double espresso with Shishandra. And then as I start to get more and more tired throughout the day, I'll have another dose of Shishandra because it increases function and of you know like brain function and the focus that people need won't interfere with sleep onset right exactly allow you to continue to build that sleep pressure yeah yeah good and i really like try to be ignorant of what my old time zone was 
So I wake up and be like, okay, it's eight o'clock, stare at the sun, do everything in a new time zone yeah. in terms of light and fueling and training. And yeah, so all your alert activities are happening when you're new to the zone to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I prioritize protein as well. Because when your brain is tired and your body's tired, you crave carbohydrate. But if you're really focusing on the protein, helps with energy levels, helps um, kind of eliminate the carbohydrate cravings, and also helps keep you going. Yeah, because your your brain isn't, when you're traveling, your default is not going to be to do the healthier things. Right. And that's where you got to really conscious and bite because those things that aren't healthy are really going to, it's going to obviously delay your ability to kind of adapt to your new environment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's really, that's great advice. And then, then just talk about training. So you just, you know, this morning you got up in Boston time and you went to the gym. Yeah. Yep. So just, I took a walk in the sun. It was freezing cold. I'm not used to real winter and there's a snow advisory. I'm like, what? I don't do snow. There's a snow advisory? Yeah. Tonight. Stop. What? Storm coming. It's because I'm here. Sorry. I know. Yeah, stared at the sauna, so I walked to the gym, got to the gym. I didn't want to do anything high intense because I was having head swings, you know, jet lag head swings. Yeah. Right? So it's just all heavy lifting, central nervous system, five by fives, five by sixes, total body movement, and then some modality, mobilization, walk home the long way in the sun, and then felt really tired and fell asleep. But anyway, that's a set. It does happen. All right. Well, we talk about the health risk factors during perimenopause and menopause related to osteoporosis, heart disease. There was recently a really interesting study on postmenopausal women. I don't know if you saw this, Stacey, but they looked at women did back strength and exercises for two years, showed that their risk for spinal compression fractures was 2.7 times lower than their peers who didn't do strengthening exercises. I suppose that's not surprising. And then another study of high intensity resistance and impact, I think like with plyometric, improved markers of bone strength in postmenopausal women with low and very low bone mass with no adverse effects. I think this kind of reinforces all the things that you said that you know can kind of help it if there's what, what kind of context or anything addition you want to add to, to that. One of my PhD students just finished. Um, her defense was a couple of weeks ago, and her project was looking at early versus late postmenopausal women with high intensity work and cardiovascular risk factors. So she's based, she's Canadian, based in Copenhagen. And so their big social game is, is floorball or floor hockey. So she had two groups come in, and they were either doing floorball or spinning. There wasn't a resistance training component because that comes later. And found that in early postmenopause, the high intensity, uh, like true high intensity, really worked to increase vascular compliance and reduce cardiovascular risk factors. Late postmenopausal, no. Not the amount of times they did, we need more. It's a dose response. And the reason, the hypothesis is that when you are early postmenopause, you still have some estrogen receptors that are playing around and can really work with the nitric oxide cycle for increasing vascular or vascular compliance. But in late postmenopause, you don't have those receptors. So you need more doses of shorter intensity, high intensity work to like, I should say more sprint intensity and more doses of the sprint intensity. So it's an exposure thing. 
So instead of going, okay, well, I'm going to do two days a week of sprint interval training. It's more like you want to do four days a week when you get into late postmenopause. It's crazy. I mean, I guarantee that there is probably not point oh 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 one percent of the population in the very you know is doing that kind of training. I know. I know. And I really get frustrated at the 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity yeah. at the baseline based on due data. And it just does not work for women who are 45 and older. That is just such a critical piece. I mean, I hope people listen to this whole podcast so they get to that yeah. moment because that's, I think that's really important. Like, I just don't think, I don't, you don't hear that. No. And people are like, oh, you're going to have my 70-year-old grandmother or my 80-year-old grandmother yeah. sprint interval. It's like, yeah, they can walk upstairs at a high intensity for them. Yeah. I'm not I'm, saying running sprints. I'm saying high intensity for them. When I think about markers of longevity, speed. I Like, yeah. I want to speed yeah. as fast as humanly possible, right? Like, right. You know, like, I think that that's so, so critical. Yeah. Um, nice. So just to kind of wrap, Stacey, this has been, I think, wildly insightful. Is there anything that you want to leave the audience with that you think you know we missed out or you know that just is just going to help inspire people to to really adopt a intentional like, program for training i think one of the things is we have now the buzzword of intuitive eating right where people are listening to their appetite i think we have to have intuitive just body because people will need to listen and understand their bodies both men and women, but particularly women, because they've been told for so long what to do and fighting against their physiology because they've been told what to do. But if they're starting to listen and understand what's happening across their cycles, what's happening in perimenopause, then they can start training according to one, how they feel and how their body responds to get more potential, to get more performance potential. Because I really don't think that we've reached it yet in female athletes because we've been training with male protocols for so long. We're leaving stuff on the table. Right. Yeah. I know. I think um, when I think about it in those terms, like how do we help women of all ages maximize their potential? And I think that there's, there's an incredible opportunity right now to to leverage this science that is coming out. <laughs> yeah. Softly. Yeah. And I'm glad that there is science coming out now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for all your time today. And uh, it's just going to be a great one. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Big thank you to Dr. Stacy Sims for coming on the Whoop podcast and sharing her insights on how women can develop a better training program alongside their menstruation. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop podcast, be sure to leave a rating or review. Please subscribe to the Whoop podcast. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us podcast at whoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. New members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, when they sign up for a new WHOOP membership. And that's a wrap for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the WHOOP podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.